Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. We're going to be looking today at that familiar uh, passage of Jesus calming the storm in the Sea of Galilee. That's found in Luke, chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, and we will read through verse 25. You can find that on page 865 of our ESVs. Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 and 25, 22 through 25. And as you're turning there and finding that, let me just say as, uh, as way of introduction over the next several weeks, uh, we are about to see a few miracle stories uh, of Jesus. In the second book that Luke recorded, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, in Peter's first public sermon, he said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. That's how he began to describe Jesus, a man attested by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. We're going to see now the beginning of a series of mighty works, Christ himself uh, working miracles that actually happened in time and space and history. The first of these today is the uh, stilling of the sea where Christ shows his power over creation. And then, in uh, Lord willing, next week we'll see Christ's power over the demonic realm as he heals a man full of demons. And then in the following week, uh, we'll see Lord, the Lord's power over physical ailments and even death itself. So we're beginning uh, in a, a short series as we're continuing through Luke uh, to see something of Christ's miraculous power. That's what we'll see today in Luke chapter 8 beginning in verse 22 and reading through verse 25. And so now, before we read this word together, please join me again in prayer as we seek God's blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, our minds are feeble unless you give us understanding. Our hearts are hard unless you soften them. Our wills are sluggish unless you move them. And so we pray that as we come to your word, you would do these things. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, that your true and living word would have a wonderful effect. O Lord, let it not return to you void as it goes out into our hearts, but cause it to uh, bear a harvest, an abundance. For the sake of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, here now, uh, Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. One day he, that is Jesus, one day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless it as we study it together today. Recently, in my uh, internet wanderings, I came uh, across a book with a title that grabbed my attention. The book was called this, Jesus the Bloke, the Mate Every Man Needs. Jesus the Bloke, the Mate Every Man Needs. Well, I just had to know more. 
Um, as it turns out, this book is written by an Australian pastor, which explains some of the terminology. Uh, but it's written by this Australian pastor with uh, an aim of introducing unbelieving Australian men to the Jesus of the Scripture. And it seems to be one of these books that suggests the best way to get to know Jesus is to see him as a regular guy. You know, just, just someone like you would be pleased to meet, someone you would love to know, somebody, uh, he says, a bloke, a mate, who, quote, makes your life better and bigger. Jesus the bloke. Now, uh, this book does also present Jesus as a supernatural person. He does present Christ of the scriptures, the one who raises the dead, the one who stills the storm. But overall, the point is to say that really Jesus is incredibly likable. You would love this guy if you got to meet him. Here's what he says. He's a good bloke to go fishing with. He's a good bloke to have a drink with. He's a good bloke to have around when you're hungry. He's a good bloke to know when you're broke. He's a good bloke to have in a boat and a good bloke to know when you're sick or even when you're dead. And then he adds the stunning conclusion, I reckon you'll like Jesus once you get to know him. I think I can understand what the author's trying to do. And as a pastor, I can appreciate his zeal to communicate Christ to an unbelieving world uh, in a way that might stick, a way that might be enticing. I think I can see what he's trying to do, but as I read the words of Scripture, especially as I read Luke chapter 8, I can't imagine that Jesus the bloke gives us the answer to the question on the disciples' lips in verse 25. Who then is this that even winds and waves obey him? Well, he's, he's a regular guy. Right? He's your mate. He's somebody who is supremely likable. Jesus is likable, don't get me wrong. He is, he is attractive in a sense. He's the fairest of 10,000. He's the rose of Sharon. He is the joy of every believing heart. He is incredibly likable, but he's also the Lord with a capital L-O-R-D. Let's not lose sight of that. Jesus is very God, a very God. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, says Hebrews. And on a stormy night in Galilee, the disciples learned that he is the Lord who can be trusted. That's what we're going to see today in this passage, that Jesus is the Lord who can be trusted. Now, as we study this passage, we are drawn to this question in verse 25. And the disciples say, who is this? And this is a question that is increasingly in focus in this section in Luke's gospel. We saw it two weeks ago on the lips of a crowd gathered together to Pharisee's house as this woman came and Jesus pronounced her free from her sins, forgiven. And suddenly everybody said, who is this who forgives sins? We've seen it already. We see it here on the disciples' lips. We're going to see it in chapter 9, the beginning, where Herod will ask, who is this about whom I hear such things? And then later in chapter 9, verse 20, Jesus himself will press the disciples, who do you say that I am? This is the supreme question that Luke wants us to ask and answer. Who is Jesus? Is he somebody that you'd just like to know? Or is he the sovereign Lord? 
Is he the creator? Is he the sustainer of all that is? Is he the one who commands and promises and all of creation does his bidding? Is he the one who can be trusted? And there are several aspects, I think, of Jesus' lordship that we see in these verses. The first thing we see about Jesus' lordship is that Jesus is the Lord who leads us into hardship. Jesus is the Lord who leads us into hardship. The whole passage centers around one of these storms that the Sea of Galilee was so well known for. And actually, the Sea of Galilee was known for these storms because of a detail that only Luke tells us, and that is that the Sea of Galilee wasn't actually a sea at all. It was just a lake. In fact, it was kind of a small lake. It was about five miles uh, side to side, about 13 miles north to south, and that means that unlike other real seas, unlike oceans, even unlike the Great Lakes, small lakes aren't able to make their own weather systems, but they are susceptible to the geography that is around them and the way that it plays in uh, to what happens on that lake. And the Lake of Galilee was certainly susceptible to some pretty extreme geography. The Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, sat about 17 miles away uh, from the Mediterranean Sea to the west. So from the Mediterranean would come uh, warm, moist air rolling over the Judean hills down uh, toward the Sea of Galilee, and immediately to, uh, to the east, stage, stage east, uh, were high mountains, steep ravines with, uh, with channels cut through them. And warm, dry air would come from the deserts to the east and would sweep up the mountains and then cool down in the heights and then rush down to where the sea was. And the sea itself sits about 700 feet below sea level. So you can imagine that the sea serves as this perfect sort of trough for these two fronts to come together and to sweep the Sea of Galilee into the perfect cauldron of squalls and wind and storms that come without warning. Now, at least four of the disciples, James and John, Peter and Andrew, at least four of the disciples knew very well the storms that could sweep into the Sea of Galilee because they were fishermen, remember. They spent their whole lives fishing on this lake. That was all they knew. They had probably heard of other boats being caught in other storms. They knew how violent the waters could become. They knew of uh, other wives of other fishermen raising children without fathers because of the lake's unpredictability. And everybody who knew anything about this lake knew the risks that were there. They knew what the sea was capable of. They knew how quickly the waters could become deadly. But probably on most days, as they went out to do their work, they just tried to put that out of their minds. They realized how dangerous the world is in which we live, but you've got to go and make a living. You've got to get through this day and the next day, and so you can't pay attention to all the dangers. You just try to get through things. And then Jesus had come along, and he took these men and he called them away from the sea. He called them away from their boats and away from their fishing, and, and suddenly they had begun to live a different life where they're living on land all the time and following him around, and they're watching him deliver people from all sorts of dangerous things and demons and diseases, and they saw him raise the dead and preach wonderful message, and it seems like such a different life than that dangerous one that they knew. But now here they were, fishermen no longer. Now they were followers of Jesus. They were devoting their lives and their time 
to the spread of the good news of the kingdom, and it was now that the storm they always feared came looking for them because they were following Jesus. That's the way it happens sometimes. In 2001, Martin and Gracia Burnham were in their 17th year of ministry. Perhaps you've read the book, In the Presence of My Enemies, where Gracia chronicles what happened. They were uh, missionaries in the Philippines with New Tribes Mission, and on May 21st, 2001, they were kidnapped at gunpoint by militants linked to Al-Qaeda. And they were held captive. They were marched through the jungles of the Philippines for 376 days. And on the final day, the day of their release, the day that the Filipina government came in and freed them, her husband, Martin, was fatally shot in the chest. All of that. Why? Because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time? Because there was some sin that they had hidden that they refused to repent of? No, 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 no. They were following Jesus. They were going where he thought, they thought he had called them to go, doing what they thought he had given them to do. And it was then that they were led into the storm of their lives. And just as it happened for the disciples, don't forget how the passage begins. Who was in charge of the travel itinerary? One day, Jesus got into a boat with the disciples, and he said to them, let's go across to the other side. All right, here we go. It wasn't their idea. They weren't deciding, well, today we're going to go here, tomorrow we'll be over there with this demoniac, we'll deal with these things. No, no, no. Jesus is driving the action. He did it on purpose. John Calvin says, it's certain that the storm that agitated the lake was not accidental. All this was arranged by the providence of God, that Christ was asleep, that a tempest arose, that the waves covered the ship which was now in danger of perishing. And so when we talk about this storm, there's a sense in which, yeah, we can talk about the geography and the mountains and the Mediterranean and the different systems of weather gathering together in this deep trough, but we also have to speak of the Lord who chose this for his disciples. One who was sovereign over all creation, who said, let's go. And they didn't bat an eye. All right, let's, let's get in the boat with Jesus. And Jesus was the one who led them into hardship. Of course, we realize that we live in a dangerous world as well. People are kidnapped in all kinds of places. There are storms that sink ships in all kinds of, of bodies of water. There are hardships. There are persecutions, there's danger, there's famine, there's cancer, there's carjacking, there's homelessness, there are all sorts of things that come against us. We know the kind of world that we live in, but if we're honest, most days we try to put those things behind us because we've just got to make it through today and then the next day and then the next day, don't we? Except in those moments that we think we're really following well after Jesus. Except in those moments that we think, you know what, I've been doing a pretty good job giving up something for him, and, and our inner legalist tells us, well, it might be dangerous, but not for you, because you're going with Jesus, aren't you? And that's when we become susceptible to that lie that says, so long as you're following where the Lord is leading you, you'll never have to face fearful circumstances. And there are uh, preachers all over the place, mostly on television, who make an awful lot of money telling people that exact lie. But you know it's not true. You know if you've been a Christian for any length of time, 
that following Jesus doesn't mean you get to get out of hardship free. It is no guarantee that you will live the happy, charmed, victorious life that you hear touted by the televangelists. You know that you can be faithful to Jesus and still face difficulty. John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you shall have tribulation. And we say, oh, no, 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 not for me. No, 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 he said it. It was a promise. In this world you shall have tribulation. We begin to tell ourselves that if we're going through something hard, it must be because we've been abandoned by Jesus. Maybe he no longer cares about what you're going through. Maybe he doesn't even know what you're going through. Maybe he's just sleeping and he has forgotten to answer the phone for a while. That's what the disciples thought. You know, Mark, in his account, gives us the details that Luke leaves out. Mark chapter 4, verse 38. It says, Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Of course he cared. He chose that storm. He led them into that storm. It was not in spite of following Jesus that they faced difficulty. The difficulty they faced was because they followed Jesus. That's who he is. Jesus is the Lord who sometimes leads us into hardship. Okay. Well, let's ask the bold question that we think we are not supposed to ask. Why? Why would he do that? Why would Jesus treat his children in such a way as to intentionally pull them through things that they don't want to go through? Things that are hard, things that are difficult, things that come like a crisis, things that are just sort of low-lying but, but never-ending, this sort of uh, thing that, that's chronic that you can't get rid of and you don't know what you're going to do with it and there's no end in sight. Maybe sometimes it's that. Maybe sometimes it's this crisis point like the storm that comes suddenly. Why would Jesus do that to his children, especially given all that the scriptures teach us about how much God loves us in Jesus? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the good news, isn't it? The gospel is the message that Jesus endured difficulties so that we wouldn't have to. He's the one who bore our sins so that we could receive his righteousness. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life to protect helpless sheep who can't defend themselves. Isn't the gospel supposed to come to us in sort of pastel promises that tell us about security and peace and, and life everlasting? That through Christ, God works all things together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his promises. Well, actually, yes, all that's true. All of that is true. But sometimes it can seem awfully disconnected between, uh, from the Christ who leads his disciples into the storm, the Christ who leads his missionaries into captivity, the Christ who leads you into all sorts of difficulties that you never expected for your life. And so the question is, why? If Jesus loves us so much, why is the Lord leading us into hardship? And the answer is that Jesus is also the Lord who calls us into deeper faith. That's our second point. 
Jesus is the Lord who calls us into deeper faith. That's what he was doing with the disciples. You know, today we're, we're focusing on this question that the disciples were asking, who is this? But don't miss the question that Jesus was asking of them. They cried and, and he awoke. They did what the storm couldn't. They woke Jesus up. And when he woke up, he rebuked the waves and the wind and there was a calm. And he turned to them with his own question, where is your faith? That's what it was about. Why lead them into this difficulty? Well, he led them into this difficulty to bring them to the moment to expose what they were trusting in. In order to sound the depths of, of how far they were willing to entrust themselves to Jesus when everything around them was screaming that that was the wrong decision to make. In short, Jesus led his disciples into the storm in order to test their faith. Now, when we talk about testing faith, we need to deal with a few misconceptions. One misconception that often comes up when we talk about uh, testing of our faith is simply the idea that God doesn't do that. God doesn't test uh, the faith of his people. No, 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 no. He, he's not uh, trying to uh, put us in a pressure situation where, where these things can be revealed. But that's a lie. It's, it's actually pretty easy to prove. All you have to do is, is check in with Peter a few decades later. Peter, of course, was one of the men in the boat, scared to death, white-knuckled, holding on to the ropes and the rigging, while this storm was raging around him, while he was wondering, are we going to die? We're about to perish. Peter was there, learning a lesson about his own faith, but about three decades later, Peter had become the teacher. And Peter wrote to the other believers in Asia Minor, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you, he says. So there we have it. Peter had learned that following Jesus meant that he should expect difficulty. It's not abnormal. It's not strange. It's run-of-the-mill Christianity. There is a fiery trial. Don't be surprised when these things happen. Don't be surprised when you follow Jesus and he leads you into difficulty because that fiery trial is testing your faith. James says the same thing. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you face various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. These trials are the means that God uses to test the faith of his children. God test the faith of his people. And this is what Jesus is doing here. There are other places that we could turn all over Scripture. Abraham to Zechariah, we could find believers of all stripes and all eras who had their own faith tested in various ways. What we learn is that the apostles seemed to think it was a normal part of Christian living to have their faith examined and exposed by the difficulties of life. So yes, God does indeed test the faith of his people. Second misconception about testing of our faith. The second misconception says that the testing of our faith is for God's benefit. That he does it to see what we're made of. Right? He takes his people, he puts them into the crucible, he cranks up the heat to sort of melt them down and see if they've got the kind of sticking power that he can work with. 
that it's a selection process, that God puts us in these situations so that he can see what's in our hearts. He doesn't need trials to see what's in our hearts. He already knows how empty we are. God already knows that any faith that we have is only a gift of his perfect grace. Jesus knows how empty and shallow our trust in him is. The problem is that we are all too often oblivious to how shallow our faith is. And so the Lord puts us to the test. He doesn't do it so that he can see our faith, but so that we can see our faith. In an interview with Gracia Burnham, that same missionary, she said that was what she learned through the time of her trial. She said, throughout my captivity, the hardest thing was seeing myself for what I really was. When everything was gone, the real me surfaced that I didn't even want to believe existed. I saw a hateful Gracia. I saw a faithless Gracia, and it was shocking. Folks, this is a missionary we're talking about here, right? This, this is the person that, for better or for worse, we tend to put on a pedestal. When we blush and we think, well, I've never done anything like that. These are the super Christians. These are the ones who are the very picture of faith in action. They've given up everything to go and raise their children somewhere in some place uh, that they didn't have to be. And so we look at them and we think, well, well, maybe these are the super Christians. And who knows? Maybe before this terrible ordeal, maybe that's the same thing that Gracia thought about herself. Maybe she thought, well, isn't it wonderful that I, I've given up so many things? Isn't it, isn't it wonderful that I am following the Lord? And perhaps it took a storm of immense proportions to put Gracia in the place that she needed to be. That was the place where she could finally stop focusing on what she trusted about herself and begin focusing on who Jesus is in the midst of her difficulty. That's where she needed to be. Yesterday at Presbytery, one of these men who was coming to become a candidate to begin his pursuit of ordained ministry, Lord willing, he told us all a little bit about himself, and he told us uh, about how his life took some unexpected twists and turns right after he graduated from West Point. And he said, through my first deployment and my first year of marriage, I quickly learned my dependence on God. What's the storm the Lord is bringing? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe not a crisis point, but, but that, that press where you see what you're made of and how little you can trust in yourself. And that's perhaps the best thing we can learn when God tests our faith, is how feeble it is and how little we can trust in ourselves. It was the same process the Lord was bringing his disciples through. Last week, uh, Andrew preached on some of the parables, and, and Mark tells us that it was at the end of the day of all this preaching of these parables that the disciples got in the boat with Jesus, and so they went uh, from this teaching, and do you remember some of the parables that Jesus was preaching that same day that they headed for the storm? Now, one of the parables that Jesus told them was about a sower and some seed. And Jesus told them about some seed that fell in a certain place where it barely hit the ground before it was snatched away, and then there was other seed that grew deep and tall and had this abundant harvest. But in the middle, he warned them about the seed that looks good at first but never grows. 
Take a look at chapter 8, verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe the disciples were there listening to Jesus as he scattered the seed of God's word, thinking, isn't it wonderful that we're the ones who have roots? Isn't it wonderful that we have given up our boats and our fishing and our careers and our tax booths and whatever else they've given up to go and to be with Jesus? Isn't it wonderful that we've done this? And isn't it wonderful to be the first Christian missionaries the world has ever seen? And perhaps they had begun to believe the hype about themselves. Perhaps they had begun to see Jesus as the bloke who comes to make their lives bigger and better. And the most loving thing Jesus could do is to put them back in the boat and to take them back out into the sea where they could see how little they could trust in themselves and they could learn just how completely they could trust in him. This brings us to our third aspect of Jesus' lordship in this passage. Not only is Jesus the Lord who leads us into difficulty, not only is he the Lord who calls us, presses us deeper into faith, but Jesus is the Lord who rules creation. There's no way around it. The miracle that Jesus performed on the Lake of Galilee broadcast, it proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is not just some friend you'd like to have around. Jesus is God Almighty, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who never changes. That's who he is. Now, one of the things you might have noticed about uh, the narrative in Luke's gospel is just how sparse the whole account is. Did you notice how many things are missing here? This is not typical for Luke. Luke is like a pastor that you know. He tends toward verbosity. He, he adds more than he takes away. And so, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke tends to take the truth of the gospel, and as he, as he researched it, as he sought out to lay out a... Uh, uh, an orderly account of all things, just as we have heard them from the beginning, he says, in the beginning of his gospel. He tends to add more, and he tends to add those details to the history that makes it read more like a drama, those little tidbits that we like. But here in Luke, at this section, we lose all of those tidbits, almost all of them. It is so sparse. It's just completely bare bones. We don't hear anything about the cushion. We don't hear anything about Jesus and the words that he uses. We don't get to hear him say, peace, be still. We only hear that he rebukes. And in fact, we hear absolutely nothing until the end of the passage about the psychology of the disciples. Did you notice that? It doesn't tell us how fearful they were. It doesn't tell us that they were shaking in their boots, although that's the sort of thing that makes a good sermon. We don't hear any of those things. We don't understand what's going on in their minds and their hearts. We don't hear any of that. Even their cry for help is bare bones. In Greek, it's only three words. And two of them are the same. Master, master, perishing. That's all we get. And Luke leaves out so much that verse 25 hits us like a freight train. And it tells us the disciples were afraid. They were afraid. And they marveled. You see, Jesus had a bigger impact on these men than the storm that almost took their lives. 
That's who he is. If you had been there, it would have been the same for you. Luke says that when Jesus awoke, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm, and you know how this works, because you've seen those little desktop knickknacks, and they're on the hinge, and they're full of the, the water and the oil, and they rock back and forth, and you get the, the rolling waves that are created in there, and even if, you, even if you stop it, they still, the ripples go for a while, don't they? It takes a while to settle out, but this is not what happened. It says that Jesus rebuked, and there was a calm. Matthew says it was perfectly calm. Mark says there was a great calm. The storm went from category four to whisper quiet in a split second, and suddenly these sailors found themselves in a biblical moment. And by that I mean that there was a scripture that probably at least the sailors had memorized that explained exactly what was happening. It was a biblical moment. It shows up in Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. There they saw the deeds of Yahweh, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. That's speaking of the, the ship as it rises and falls. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed, and they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. These men knew what this miracle meant. They knew that it meant that Jesus was no ordinary teacher because he did what only God could do and he did it in only the way that God does it. We don't hear the words that he used. We simply hear that he rebuked the wind and the waves. Well, Psalm 104 tells us that in the days of creation, when the Lord was establishing boundaries, what did he do? He rebuked the depths and they fled to their holding places. Psalm 106 tells us that the Lord rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. Luke chapter 8 tells us that on a stormy night in Galilee, Jesus stood in a boat and he rebuked and creation obeyed the voice of its master. The waters heard the voice of him who hovered over the deeps at the very beginning. The waves listened to the words of him who set their boundaries and creation humbled itself in the presence of him who upholds the universe with the word of his power. And the disciples knew, despite their danger, despite their feeble faith, they knew that they stood in the presence of the Lord who rules creation. Now, what are we supposed to take away from this passage? How do we apply this? Well, we began with that book called Jesus the Bloke, but... Mark Galley wrote a different book. It was called Jesus Mean and Wild, sort of the polar opposite of Jesus the Bloke. And he was trying to correct this sort of saccharine, sweet image of, of the pacifist Jesus that, that modern uh, Christian imaginations have created, the, the Jesus that we've so well domesticated. Jesus Mean and Wild, says Mark Galley. Well, in his book, he tells the story of a group of Laotian refugees 
who wanted to join as members in his church in Sacramento. Now, these refugees had only been in the States for a short amount of time. They'd only been attending his church for about a month, and they had almost no biblical literacy. Had just barely been exposed to the Christian gospel and the whole message of Christianity. It was completely new to them, but several of them, it seemed, had been converted, and they wanted all of them now. This whole group wanted to come and join as members in the church, and Mark Galley decided, you know what, why don't we take some time, it's great, I'm excited that you're excited, let's take some time and see what discipleship is really all about. He suggested that they get together and they read a gospel together, and just, just walk through uh, the narrative, just see what there was to see about Jesus and what he calls his people to. And he says that when he came to this story, they were, they were studying Mark, but when they came to the story of the calming of the storm, uh, Galley approached it the way that far too many preachers do. He says he told this group of men that this means Jesus is able to calm the spiritual storms in your life. And they were puzzled. They didn't, they didn't have any response to that, he said. And so he elaborated. He said, well, we all have storms. We have problems. We have worries. We have troubles, crises. Uh, this story teaches that Jesus can give us peace in the midst of those storms. So I asked, what are your storms? said the men stared there at him, puzzled, silent, until one of them finally asked, does this mean Jesus actually calmed the winds and the waves? Well, at this point, Galley was worried that they were going to get hung up on the miraculous, and maybe that was going to be a stumbling block for them. And so he said, well, well yes, it does, but let's not get hung up on the details of the miracle. What this means is Jesus can calm the storms of our lives. And again, they were silent until finally one man spoke up. He said, well, if Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, he is a very powerful man. And at this, they all began to chatter and to, to nod and to be excited. And he concludes, the room was full of wonder. I suddenly realized they grasped the story better than I did. What are you supposed to take away from this passage? What is it supposed to do? It's supposed to show us Jesus. It's supposed to show us Jesus so that we can stare in wonder at the one who rules the wind and the waves. And it teaches us something about what Jesus is doing in our difficulties. It teaches us something about the way that Jesus pushes us deeper and deeper into the faith that he gives us as a gift to all of his children. But far more, this passage is showing us Jesus who is the sovereign Lord over all creation. He's the Lord of the wind and the waves. He's the Lord of your difficulties. He's the Lord of your faith. He is the Lord who is worthy of your fear and your marveling and your worship. And because of all of these things, Jesus is the Lord who can be trusted. That's what the disciples learned. I hope that's what we've learned together today as well. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent him, the beloved of the Father, to give his life as a ransom for many. And he loves us enough not to leave us in complacency. But through your immense power, working it in him and working in us by your Spirit, 
call us deeper and deeper into faith in the one who rules the waves. O Lord, cause us to follow him wherever he will lead us and to know that we can trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.